Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming. I'm Tracy Diamond, Programming Assistant at the Library. Um, I'm glad you're all here joining us for an evening with Jessica Blau and Matthew Norman. I am really excited to bring up Jessica Blau to introduce Matthew Norman, who I'm also excited to hear. I first heard Jessica when I went to an artichoke haircut reading, if any of you are familiar with those. Um, it was a kind of rowdy, fun reading series at Upstairs in Dionysus. And after hearing her read, I think from Naked, the Summer of Naked Swim Parties, um, I became a fan. So I'm really glad she's here tonight, and you'll hear more about her soon. Um, but please welcome Jessica Blau. Thank you. So I'm introducing Matt Norman. Um, so first I want to tell you something really quick, which is we were outside taking pictures of ourselves in front of that giant poster. And I was telling Matt about this live video conference I did today that I completely, the screen froze so the questions didn't come up. So I was riffing and I was like, look at my diaper dog. And then I was, you know, like talking about the time I peed my pants. I mean, it was just insane because there were no questions and it was terrible. And Matt said, oh, well, hopefully nobody saw it. And I was like, no, 657 people saw it, it said. And he was like, whoa. And then like two minutes later, I was like, how's your book doing? Your book looks like it's doing great. And he said, yeah. And then this is something you, you usually don't ask this question, but since Matt and I have actually had this conversation before, we're keeping tabs. I was like, so how many is it sold now? And he said, 250,000. And I thought, oh, my God, it sold 250,000. And I was just like, 657 people saw me. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, his book came out like seven hours ago. I, I don't know, maybe a week ago or something. It sold 250000 which is incredible. So, all right, so this is uh, about five or six years ago, someone from HarperCollins sent me a book called Domestic Violets and asked if I'd blurb it. The author lived in Baltimore, I was told. Uh, I read the book, which is about a struggling writer who suffers from erectile dysfunction marital distress, office crushes, corporate loathing, and, well, he has a complicated relationship with his father who has no problem getting an erection and who also is awarded the Pulitzer Prize. In short, the book was and is fun, hilarious, wonderfully written, and I was impressed and maybe I was jealous. I wrote the blurb, and at some point, Matt and I emailed, but just a little. I invited him to a party where a bunch of writers would be, he showed up, had one drink, and then slipped away. He was sort of like a fictional character in my mind. Then a few months ago, Matt emailed me and mentioned that he had a new book coming out. Of course, I wanted to blurb this one, mostly so I could get my hands on it before anyone else and have the pleasure of reading another Matthew Norman book. Again, the book was incredibly funny, smart, and about a complicated guy who was sensitive, passionate, and trying to find greater meaning and connection in his life after everything, his marriage, career, and family, has essentially blown apart. The book takes place mostly in Omaha, and for some reason, this got me to wondering, who exactly is Matt Norman? I wrote Matt an email after I finished his second fabulous book, and I think I said something like, who are you? And I can't remember what he wrote back, but it was about six words long, because even though he is an incredibly talented writer, he is also a straight guy. So the word ratio of our correspondence then and since, including today, we have three emails today, is maybe 39 to 2, meaning he writes two words for each 39 I write. 
And then, because my book's coming out at the same time, Matt and I have been talking more. We've had two interviews together, one that required that we hang out together at one of Baltimore's most disgusting but great bars, and another where we were asked the most unbookish questions I've ever been asked. And through all that, the very tall and mysterious Matt Norman has finally been revealed to me. So who is Matt Norman? Well, he's a husband and father, maybe first and foremost. He talks about the three women he lives with with tremendous affection and wit. Two, he's every bit as neurotic as all the other writers I know. He looks like a normal guy, like someone who would play golf at a country club and make the perfect best man toast and take his daughter to the father-daughter square dance. And I'm sure he's well-skilled with all that. But inside, he's as nutso as me, and because there are so many other writers in this room, as nutso as you. Um, three, he's genuinely nice, like a real, live, actual nice person. He's so nice, he makes me want to. He makes me want to move to Omaha because if he's like this, I have a feeling all those people in Nebraska might be like this. Four, he is truly hilariously funny. In the quickest, sharpest way, 30 seconds after Brexit was voted through, I went on Twitter to see what people were saying, and Matt popped up immediately saying, wait, if they have to leave, do they still get to keep those adorable accents? (laughs) Back to the unbookish interview we did together. The interviewer asked us if we had to have a three-way with a celebrity couple, who would it be? I had an answer immediately, of course, Mark Ruffalo and Julianne Moore from The Kids Are All Right. I mean... Who else, right? And I typed my answer into the Google document and waited to see what Matt would type, because how does a nice guy from Omaha answer a question like that? Matt wrote, quote, oh man, dot, 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 dot. I'm way too neurotic to have a three-way, period. Plus, I'm from the Midwest. I'd spend the whole time apologizing to everyone and asking if they wanted iced tea. (laughs) And that was it. It was, I thought, a wonderfully genuine answer from a wonderfully genuine guy and someone I'm happy to say is now my friend. So here he is, my friend, and maybe eventually yours too, Matt Norman. That is the longest anyone has ever spoken about me including my best man speech. Uh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, before we get started, uh, I wanted to talk about, um, I don't know if you guys can see it because it's sort of dim in here, but my right eyeball is covered in blood. Uh, a couple of days ago, I, dr- I just drove home. I was by myself, and I was in my house, and I was like talking to my dog. My wife wasn't there, and... Uh, I caught a glimpse of myself, and my eyeball was bleeding. And so I went uh, to the doctor the next day, because it's just not normal that that happens, and uh, I burst a blood vessel in my eye doing nothing, nothing. Like he said, could have been a sneeze, uh, you could be stressed out, and I feel like that is a perfect example of the world telling you that you're not young anymore. When things right next to your brain can just explode, and the doctor's reaction is, uh, yeah, that, that happens. Uh, so I, I apologize. It doesn't hurt, but I look uh, like I'm slowly transitioning into becoming a zombie. But um, I'm okay. 
um, you know, as long as we're uh, actually talking about my physical appearance, I, I feel like I should I should speak at great length about my author photo. Um, every I don't know if you guys have the programs. You can see it. There was a giant picture of it out on the street. Uh, so I, I look I look very very serious in my picture. Um, and this is how that went down. Like, I, my friend of mine from New York came down. He's a photographer. And together, the two of us just walked around downtown Baltimore for like an hour and a half. And he took pictures of me, which is weird in and of itself, right? And what made it weirder was every five minutes, somebody would stop and stare at me to see if I was famous, like if I was an Oriole or something. <laughs> and then, then they would just be like, no, it's just some dude, you know, getting his picture taken. And uh, so my friend Jason took a thousand pictures, just all digital, snap, snap, snap. And in the vast majority of them, I was smiling. Uh, I have this problem where I can't smile on command. I, I'm a deeply unhappy person. And if I'm, on the rare occasion I'm happy, I, I smile, it looks totally normal. But like, if you just say smile, I get this sort of pain. So it, it was like 900 pictures of me like that. And, uh, then there was a handful of pictures of me just looking very serious and upset. And I had, a, I had a conversation with my editor where she actually said to me, do you want to look stupid in your author picture? Or do you want to look a little bit overly serious? And I was like, well, that's a good way to articulate that. So I decided that I'm going to look a little overly serious. This book is a comedy, although it looks like I've like, written For Whom the Bell Tolls or something. But uh, it is a comedy, I promise you. Um, speaking of Omaha, that's where I'm from. I'm from the Midwest. And um, Jessica asked me once if everyone in Omaha from Omaha looks like me. Um, and I was sort of offended. But then I realized that, yeah, pretty much, this is Omaha, Nebraska, right? This is what we all look like. We're all over six feet tall, and uh, we all sound like this, pretty much. But um, so I was in Omaha a couple weeks ago for uh, you know, the, you know, a reading, and a local bookstore had me. And there's a lot of swearing in the book. And uh, as my mother has pointed out to me a lot, there's a lot of swearing. And I was like, you know what? I'm an adult. I'm a novelist. I'm just going to swear in my reading, right? And so I, sat, I got there. Everybody's sitting down. And there were two little girls and, I'm not kidding, a yellow lab puppy <laughs> sitting in the front row. One of my friend's dads brought his freaking dog to my reading. And so I, I was all ramped up to just swear. And then these two little, I was like, well, maybe these two little girls and their dog don't want to hear me say the F word in Omaha, Nebraska at 4 o'clock on a Saturday. And so uh, I decided not to swear at all. But um, I bleeped it out horribly. Like, I used other words which sounded awful, like watching a Tarantino movie on TBS or something. It was just awful. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, all right. So I, I've said everything I need to say. Uh, and now I'm just going to read chapter one of We're All Damaged. Um, the beauty of reading chapter one is you don't have to provide any context. I can just start reading. Um, it's scary how many details I remember about the night Karen left. That's the thing I hate most about my brain, the way it stores and catalogs things, all this dumb shit on a giant hard drive in my head, so I'm forced to obsess over it all like a crazy person. Here's a perfect example our waiter had a button stuck to his apron that said, ask me about bacon time. Why in the hell would I remember that? He had to have been wearing like 30 buttons. They always do, but that's the one I remember. 
He brought us our food. I saw the button, and I wondered if he was ever tempted to wear it outside of work, like with jeans and a T-shirt, just hanging out with his friends. Hey, everybody, you guys, ask me about bacon time. There was an old couple at the table next to ours drinking these enormous novelty margaritas like a pair of drunks on a cruise. The lady kept touching her husband's hand across the table. It was nice. I remember thinking that. They wore matching Velcro sneakers. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go by Wham! was playing. Blast from the past, I know, but talk about a jagged little piece of pop music irony. I suggest Googling it. It's the single most upbeat fucking thing in the history of recorded music. In 5,000 years, archaeologists will unearth it on someone's long-lost computer. Jesus, were these primitive people really that happy? They'll ask in their high-tech future language. Karen was wearing her green sweater, the one I got her for her birthday. She really loves green, green throw pillows, green socks. She painted an accent wall green in our dining room once when I was away. It was kind of weird, her green obsession, but I went with it because she was my wife. I saw the sweater on one of those creepy headless mannequins at the Gap, and I knew she'd love it. Here's the worst detail of all, worse than wham, even, if you can believe it. It all happened at Applebee's. Don't get me wrong, I'm not a snob. I don't have a problem with Applebee's per se, but I think we can all agree as a civilized society that lives shouldn't change there. Significant things shouldn't begin or end at Applebee's. You shouldn't walk into Applebee's as one thing and then leave as something else entirely. She was eating chicken fingers and fries, and I was eating sizzling chili lime chicken off the 550 calories menu. I was a lot healthier back then. She was being so quiet. This had been going on for months, the quiet game, but that night was pure radio silence, nothing. She just stared out into the parking lot, out toward Home Depot, while I asked her all of those idiotic questions husbands ask their wives when they're not saying anything. How was traffic this morning? Is the pollen count higher than usual today? Who's hosting SNL this week? Can you see my nipples through this shirt? How many of these people do you think are actually spies from TGI Fridays? <laughs> and then, this is what she said. She said, Andy, I don't want this anymore. I've been over this in my head a few times, and I've come to the conclusion that it's perfectly reasonable that I thought she was talking about her chicken fingers. They were just sitting there. She'd hardly even touched them. I saw the opportunity to do something intimate and husbandly, so I cut a little triangle of my sizzling chili lime chicken and held it out to her. Well, you should totally try this, I said, the world's most oblivious living human man. She looked at it, glistening there on my fork. We were never the kind of couple that feeds each other. Maybe that's the ultimate litmus test for marital stability. Maybe all of those horrible idiots you see sensually feeding each other in public are doing it right, and the rest of us are all doomed to studio apartments and e-harmony. No, no, Andy, she said. Not this, this. I don't want this anymore. And then everyone started clapping. The entire waitstaff came marching out from the kitchen, huddled around a cake and candles. A few tables over, a teenage girl with braces blushed. 
It was the girl's birthday, but for a few seconds, I imagined that it was all for me. The cake, the candles, the singing. I imagined that Karen had called Applebee's from work and set the whole thing up. Got you, she'd say from across the table. The birthday girl's name was Bailey, like someone's pet, and by the time the waiters and waitresses were done singing, Karen was crying. I just sat there, shell-shocked and numb, the victim of sudden domestic terrorism. Can I help you folks with anything else? It was our waiter. He was smiling in that maniacal way that waiters at places like Applebee's smile like they're all doing methamphetamines back in the kitchen. Believe it or not, the thing I regret most about that whole shitty evening is that I didn't have the presence of mind to look our waiter in the eyes, clear my throat, and say, yeah, can you tell me about bacon time? (laughs) Stupid, I know, but maybe it would have given Karen a small glimpse of what she was in the process of leaving behind. Maybe she would have had second thoughts. I didn't say it, though. Instead, I told him probably the biggest lie I've ever told anyone in my life. No, I said, we're fine. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Michael Downs, and I'm here to introduce our next reader was a great good friend and a great good writer. Um, But first, that was hilarious. (laughs) Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm never going into an Applebee's. (laughs) But a few nights back, I did visit my neighborhood's Persian restaurant to get lamb kebab. I'd had a taste for lamb since denying myself the same dish a week or so earlier for a reason a protagonist in a Jessica Anya Blau novel might understand. I worried that my dining companions, all vegetarians, would scorn me for ordering cute, fluffy baby animal on a stick. (laughs) But I wanted lamb, and this time I promised myself I'd get it. I went alone no one to judge me, and brought for company only the trouble with Lexi. The restaurant's large screen TV was showing a music streaming station that featured images of Stonehenge and the Grand Canyon and close-ups of dewy roses. The channel was called Sad Violin. In counterpoint, from below came thumping Persian club music, a party in the restaurant's downstairs banquet hall. A family near my table included a girl wearing adorable fuzzy animal ears, a wolf's, I think. Her family, like most of the patrons, chose to eat from the buffet's offerings, which I decided to skip because the buffet didn't include lamb. Instead, I ordered off the menu. Over my appetizer and wine, I read about Lexi and her Madame Bovary-like struggle. Will she choose moonshot sex with her Don Draper-like boyfriend? Or will she marry her small world and unexciting fiancé, Peter, who has, and I quote, no shoulders of note? I turned a page. Peter is definitely what I want, Lexi said. 
but she also eyed her purse where she kept her anxiety meds, her clonopin. I'm sure you'll have many wonderful years together, her pal Dot told her, but if you don't, remember that the only life worth living is one where there's been numerous fuck-ups. Wait, Lexi said, do you think I'm fucking up? When the waiter came by again, I announced my order, lamb kebab. He grimaced, glanced toward the kitchen. Because of the big party below, he explained, the kitchen staff was tired. They had decided to stop cooking. The buffet, he offered. I stuttered, but, but I said I wanted to order off the menu. He must have seen a look on my face because he stumbled through a few words, then said, I know my way around the kitchen. Wait, wait, he'll cook for me? He'll cook me kebab? He doesn't need to cook kebab for me. What if the bosses yell at him, I thought. Is he a good enough cook? Shouldn't I just be happy with the buffet and the sad violin? But actually, I want the lamb. He left for the kitchen, and I, a little frantic, opened the book. Anxiety turned on like an electric tea kettle in Lexi's stomach. She felt like water heating up. Look at all those other tables the waiter has, I thought. Am I selfish? Should I mention that I want naan instead of rice? That'll be more work for him. But if he brings rice, I won't eat it. No one wants wasted food. I read the book. Honey, don't get all worked up, said Lexi's pal Dot. And then Lexi said, okay, I'm sorry. I was making a big deal out of nothing. Then I paused, amazed. Jessica Anya Blau had created characters so imperfectly comically real that I'd become like Emma Bovary, enmeshed in fictional lives to the point that I had become transported into that place between reality and literature. I'd been channeling Lexi through a trouble with Lexi moment, <laughs> caught between choices, anxieties, wanting something but also wanting to do the right thing and probably doing the wrong thing because I'm human. We are all human. Lexi, c'est moi. How did it end? In a Lexi-esque way. I read on and came to accept Lexi's, and came to Lexi's meditation on the first therapeutic step for anxiety. Accept, accept without judgment. When the waiter brought the kebab, I said, thank you. This is wonderful, I said. He looked happy. And I had lamb kebab, so I was happy. And I thought, my heavens, Jessica Anya Blau, that genius of anxiety and want and comedy and acceptance, that love child of Gustave Flaubert and Woody Allen, she had just authored my very evening. She has that power. It comes from her easy prose, which is so hard to write from her fast-paced and funny scenes, the constant delight and surprise in her stories, and from her awareness that numerous fuck-ups might only mean you're trying to live a grand life and that you're human. There she is, ready to rewrite whatever evening you thought you were going to have. <laughs> Accept it. Join me in welcoming her. Nobody writes a better introduction than Michael Downs. We all know that. Um, okay, so the book, 
Uh, I was just trying to see if my husband made it here, and he did. So um, among the people who are sick of me uh, is my husband. Because, um, and, the, and there's a bunch of writers here, because writers know that when your book comes out, you are the most self-centered human on earth, and you are unbearable. And it's because, you know, you've got your publicist on the phone and the, the editor on the phone. Today I had the marketing person, the publicist, and the editor on the phone, and then I have this Facebook thing, and then they're like all tweet. You know, they want me to tweet and Facebook post. I'm like, tweeting, Facebook post, and, and David is completely disgusted with me. So I have to tell you that I bottomed out today when I had uh, an, a pre-existing appointment for my um, pap smear. And so I went to the doctor for my pap smear, and she said, how's it going? I was like, you know, and of course I'm in the, self, the most self-centered mode I've ever been. I'm like, hey, my book's going to be the book, i got to read it tonight, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm on the radio today, right now. And she's like, you are? And then I turned on my phone, and there was a tweet about it. Jessica Honey on the radio. So I touched it, and the radio came on. And she said, oh, well, we can listen. I was like, we can? I said, yeah. So we put it on a table, and I opened my legs, and she opened the speculum, and she went into my vagina while we listened to me on the radio. <laughs> and so I was sitting there, and I took a picture of her, too. It's on my phone. I'm happy to show anyone. And I took a picture, and I thought, this is the most... She's looking at my vagina, talking about my vagina, while we are listening to me on the radio. It was just kind of a great moment. And, um, and then I, my, I have a very reasonable friend. I have some unreasonable ones and some reasonable ones. So I texted it to a friend who I knew would be the voice of reason, the picture of my leg and her there with the speculum. And I said, can I Instagram post this? And she said, no. But I, I knew if I had asked, like, Jim Magruder, he would have been, what would you have said? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... So you got to know who to ask. So I did refrain from posting it, but I will show anybody who wants to come up afterwards. <laughs> All right, so this is The Trouble with Lexi, and I'm st- like Matt did, I'm just starting in the beginning. This is a prologue, and this is an epigraph. You always get epigraph, epigram, epitaph mixed up. Uh, which is, love is like a fever which comes and goes quite independently of the will. Stendhal. And actually, I have glasses that I'm going to put on. All right, so this will make it easier for me. This is the prologue. The problem wasn't so much that Lexi had taken the clonopin, and it wasn't even that she had stolen them. At 30 generic pills for $10, the theft of a handful, one down the gullet, the rest down her bra, had to be less than seven bucks. The problem, as Lexi saw it, was that she had fallen asleep in the bed of the owner of the clonopin, and the owner of the clonopin was the wife of her lover. Miss James, Jen Waite said, Her dyed hair was blonder than Lexi's, and her pale face looked prettier than Lexi remembered from their single meeting at Parents' Weekend, brow furrowed now, head tilted with concern. Lexi looked down at herself. Her fitted red dress was scrunched up to her hips. 
She wasn't wearing underwear. A shadow of hair trailed from crotch to mid-thigh. Lexi tried to yank the dress down, but her brain, hand, body coordination was off, and she couldn't manage the required butt lift. Miss James, do you know where you are? Jen Waite said. Lexi managed to sit up. Her eyes were wide open. She looked straight down at the tightly made bed at 33. She had yet to figure out how to make a bed this perfectly, this hotel or military-like, and thought about the pill bottle. Yes, she remembered. She had put it back exactly where she had found it, prescription label facing out, as it had been when she'd first spotted the drugs in the medicine cabinet. Miss James, are you okay? Dear God, Daniel was in the room, and he was calling her Miss as if they hadn't spent an entire week together in this very house only last month, as if they hadn't spent two nights together every week for the past eight months, as if he had never whispered, I love you, into her ear, her neck, and the usually hairless and opalescent insides of her thighs. No, Daniel was calling her Miss as if their only relationship were through Ethan, the beloved Waite's son, who earlier in the year had been one of Lexi's student patients at the Ruxton Academy. Ethan's condition had been nothing serious, nothing even half serious, college application-related stress, an exceedingly ho-hum and common ailment at the elite boarding school. Ambien, Lexi finally said. She had read stories of people taking the sleeping pill and then eating all the dairy out of the refrigerator or driving to their ex-wife's house and trying on her underwear. You need an Ambien? Daniel was staring at her with a hard, distant look. There was no glint of recognition, no slyness of shared secrets, mixed fluids, merged scents. You're missing a shoe. He pointed at Lexi's bare right foot. On her left foot was the strappy, high-heeled sandal she had originally bought for her planned wedding. Of course, she had intended to wear both shoes to the blessed event. I, I haven't been sleeping lately, and I took an Ambien tonight, and I must have driven over here on it. Wow! Lexi tried to act as if stunned, as stunned as one might be if this had actually happened. Wow! Can you believe it? She got off the bed and pulled down her dress. She brushed her hand across the bedspread as if fleas or crumbs had fallen off her. Wow. Wow, Jen said. That's crazy. Was the door unlocked? Jen looked at Daniel as if to accuse him of once again forgetting to lock the front door. I guess it was unlocked. I don't even remember coming in. Don't you live on campus? Jen was open-mouthed and wild-eyed. This would be a story for her next dinner party. Lexi hoped it would be the only story Jen told involving Lexi. Until earlier in the night, Lexi hadn't understood that she was that woman, the one who may have broken up a 20-year marriage by ruthlessly being the easy one in a man's life, never asking him to stop at the drugstore and pick up vitamin C, never demanding that he not chew his cereal so loudly, never insisting that he refrain from making sexist jokes in front of company, always interested in sex. I do live on campus, but I have a friend who lives nearby on Scarborough Road, so I'm familiar with the area. Lexi pointed toward the window as if Scarborough Road were right there, although she wasn't even sure if she was within 30 minutes of the wait, if it was within 30 minutes of the wait house. She had passed a street sign for Scarborough Road during the drive over and remembered only because when she had read the sign, Simon and Garfunkel had, Garfunkel had started singing Scarborough Fair 
in some faraway, echoey nook in her head. Oh, who do you know on Scarborough Fair? Jen smiled. She seemed happy to know they might have a mutual friend. What a lucky coincidence that of all the houses around here, yours was the one where I landed. Lexi rolled right over the question. The muck in her brain couldn't coalesce enough to come up with a name. I I guess that is lucky, Jen said. Well, I better get out of here. Lexi looked back at the bed as if she had forgotten something. No, you have to stay tonight, Jen said. It's not safe to drive with that stuff in your system, and we have plenty of bedrooms. Short half-life. Lexi waved her hand. I'll be fine. She knew she was far from reaching the half-life of anything. Oh, please stay. I'll blame myself if something happens to you on the road. Jen extended a hand and placed it on Lexi's forearm. How odd to be touched by the wife of your lover. It was such a gentle touch, so natural, and yet Lexi hated it. It stirred up a soupy guilt for acts that had, in the past, felt wonderfully liberating. She'll be fine. Daniel went to the bedroom door and stood there stiffly as if to escort Lexi out. I'm sorry, Jen said. She shot her eyes toward Daniel to scold him for his rudeness. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Lexi felt a sheen of shame growing on her flesh like a fish skin coat. Should we look for your shoe? Jen glanced around the room. My shoe? Lexi looked down at her leather sack-like purse that sat on the floor by the bed. The rubber edge of Jen's vibrator peeked out of the top of Lexi's bag like a periscope. Lexi swooped down and hoisted the bag up onto her shoulder. She shook the bag a little, allowing the vibrator to burrow out of sight. No, don't bother. I'm pretty sure I left it at my apartment. Lexi forced a smile and then shrugged her shoulders as as if this were a comical weekend mishap, something that might happen in a sitcom or a rom-com starring a sitcom star. For a few seconds, Lexi, Jen, and Daniel all stood motionless as if they were in a play and had each forgotten their blocking. Well, walk her to the car at least, Danny, Jen said at last. Danny? Lexi had never heard that one before. Thank you, Mr. Waite, she said. The mister felt foreign now, like a tin coin in Lexi's mouth, the edges beveled and sharp. Daniel once told Lexi that the instant he met her, he craved her body with the hunger of a starving man in a Turkish prison. Lexi had been meaning to look up Turkish prisons ever since to see if they actually starved people in them. Her sense of Turkey was that it was a pretty cosmopolitan place as long as you stayed on the European side. But like so much else the past few months, looking up Turkey was something she'd never gotten around to. Thank you. And uh, Michael Downs was going to moderate a discussion. So if you have questions... Okay, I've, I've been trying to think if I should ask a, a, a question about threesomes. Um, I, I, I don't think I can quite do that, but I, I would like to know what is the, um, the, the, the just the absolute grotesque, wonderful bar where you. Um... What? Do you remember the name? I don't remember the name. No, it was uh, something on Falls Road. It was on Falls Road. Curve shop. Wow. <laughs> well played, everyone. Yes. Impressive. It was the curve shop. Yeah, and and. 
It was fun. Like when I went to the bathroom by myself, I met a lot of people I could have gone home with. <laughs> so, it was fun. People there were very interested in Jessica. Yeah, yeah. The beauty of being a guy in a bar is you're basically invisible. It's like I was. Uh, like a superpower, but everyone was very excited about uh, her presence. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to riff off one more thing that you said earlier, uh, and, and, and wonder, um, not again celebrity threesomes, but who you might see um, cast as your protagonists in the movie versions? Go first. Um, I'm blanking on his name. I, I, get, I, get, I get asked that question all the time uh, with domestic violence. And I never really had a good answer. I just would think of the most famous 30-ish year old guy I could think of. So now you're prepared. Now I'm prepared. It's, oh, I remember now. It's, uh, I, I sat down to write this book uh, from page one with Jason Schwartzman in mind. Because he is such an incredible contrast to everybody else in the state of Nebraska. You do not go, most of the book takes place in Omaha. And you wouldn't go to Omaha and see Jason Schwartzman walking around. And that's part of this guy's character. He's very different from his family. There's a lot of contrast. And so it was uh, him all the way. And, you know, I don't know. Who do you think? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. I mean, Daniel, you know, I mean, you said uh, John Hamm, who, who we saw in New York eating lunch a while ago. Oh, he he wow. looked just as good in person. And, um, but I was thinking Coach Taylor. I was thinking Kyle Chandler. I was just thinking that, you know, the black hair and the, just the, Coach. I love mm -hmm. Coach. I love him. Okay. And Lexi, you know, I mean, it's funny because Matt's books have been optioned, you know, and his option and then renewed, and mine have been optioned and renewed and all this stuff. And so you do start thinking about that, but of course, it doesn't matter what you think because <laughs> the, the option is like saying, oh, they're reading it on planet Mars. Like it just is so removed. Okay. All right. Well, then um, we will open it. Yes. I'll have everyone in this room, like all, a lot of my favorite writers and friends are here, so I'll have everybody in this room and we just have grilled cheese and grilled cheese sandwiches. I'm not a foodie. Nothing that smells like a part of the human body. So no fish, no mushrooms, no stinky cheeses. Nice. Okay, that's a good, yeah, Jessica, <laughs> Jessica managed to make that gross, which I think is impressive. Uh, I, uh... I would do pizza because I'm not a foodie either. Um, just be a bunch of really super good-looking people, I think. Uh, <laughs> that would be just the best-looking people I could find. Would, uh, that's probably... And uh, Richard Russo, I'd invite him to. And then we would talk about how good-looking everyone was. But not writers because Matt has told me that he doesn't think writers are good-looking. I asked him. <laughs> she caught me off guard with that question. It was when we were, it was when we were at that bar and uh, I had more natty bows than she did. And... Uh, she caught me off guard with that. Writers are super good looking. <laughs> Anyone else? And we don't have to hang out and ask questions, but we're just doing it. So, um, I, I, both of you are not originally from Baltimore, but you both live here now, I think. What, what are your favorite parts of the city, of places to go, things to do? What do you like about being here? I, I love the people. I mean, the people are so nice. And every time I'm in California, 
I have this thought that I just want to take all the people in Baltimore and, and move them to California so I can be in California with them. Like I just, people are so genuine and warm. And I, I like everybody, I like everybody I meet. Yeah, I love Baltimore. I moved from Nebraska in 2001 to uh, the D.C. area for grad school, and there couldn't be two more different places. I mean, they're 40 miles apart, and they're just so vastly different. And I eventually moved up here uh, to be with my then-girlfriend, or my wife now, but she was my girlfriend then. But, um, yeah, I love the people. I love Camden Yards. I love the food. I love the accent, which I've never been able to emulate. Uh, I've tried a lot. But I love that The Wire was here. You know, I just love that everything is just... It's a gritty, very real city with so many contrasts, and uh, I just love it. I, I love saying I'm, fr I'm I say I'm from here now, because if I say I'm from Nebraska, it's like I'm saying I'm from some crazy island no one's heard of. It's like the most exotic thing I can say out here. But uh, so I just I just say I'm from uh, Baltimore now, and I'm proud to. You know, I like that everybody's okay. Like you go to New York and you're walking through Soho, and and you just can't help but feel inferior every step you take and every shop you walk in. It's like you you it's a continual state of less than. And you, you come to Baltimore, it's like, you're my friend, you're my, everybody's okay. Like, we're all okay. It's, it's Sesame Street. W would you set anything you wrote in Baltimore? I don't think so. Yeah, why not? I don't know. I mean, I started something. I don't know. Yeah, I'm the same way. I've started something that's set here uh, for the first time. I feel like... I've been here long enough now where I can write about it with some authority, and it takes a while, you know, to, to do that. I just didn't want to fumble my way through uh, a setting, and uh, I feel like I've been here long enough, so my, I have 83 typed double-spaced pages <laughs> that take place in Baltimore right now. I have about 40. Oh. I'm winning. <laughs> well, you are, too, because you have sold 250,000 books. Well, you know. <laughs> so. Oh, we hang out. We do hang out a lot together. Matt's shy, so we can't get him in that much, so I just can get him alone. Uh, we hang out at people's houses. We go to each other's readings. We, there's so many incredible writers here, including Michael Downs, who's introduced. I mean, there in this room are a bunch of people who wrote amazing books. Um, and so we definitely try to go to each other's readings and support each other. I mean... Jim Magruder's behind you. He has a new book out. He and I are reading together in Philadelphia tomorrow. Um, but we it's a good, supportive community. Yeah, coffee houses or... Oh, sometimes, yeah. I write at Starbucks, and Larry Doyle, who also writes behind you, and he writes at Starbucks sometimes. And um, Evergreen was big. Evergreen was big for a while, but now the coffee's so bad. <laughs> you know? And then the poet, Liz Hazen, is behind you, and sometimes she comes to my house, and we write in my dining room, and... You know, I mean, there's there's a bunch of, you know, writers here. Lindsay Fleming is writing, and Tracy Wallace is writing. But, you know, so we all, we do write in different groups, and but we do try to support each other and show up to our events and, and hang out. And it's a, It is a really nice group in that I don't feel like anybody is trying to push anybody else down. We're all trying to take each other's hands and pull each other up. You know, at least everyone that I know, you know, we all are... We're in it together, and it's, so it's a really great community. I don't think we'd have that in New York either. Anything else? Any other questions? Thank you All for right. coming. Thank you, too. Thanks for a wonderful evening. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, thank you very much again, Matthew and Jessica, for your hilarious and awesome readings. And thank you, Michael Downs, for your wonderful introduction and moderating.